Hey everybody, I bet a lot of you guys are wondering, wow, this podcast is still going and why? And then some of you that are reading the title of this podcast and are very mad at me right now because I should have collaborated on some of these movies with people are probably going, wow, asshole, why do you not want to collaborate and talk about these movies with me? Let me kind of explain here a little bit. So, basically, like I said, this podcast kind of regulates on my time, my schedule, and how I'm feeling a certain movie. Yes, the title of the podcast does imply it is my entertainment hour, so we will talk about what I am feeling, basically. Now, that's not to say if you DM me and there's a certain movie you want to talk about, I'm going to turn it down automatically, but I'm just saying sometimes I get into what's called, in my mind, the film roadblock. The film roadblock basically means, like, I went and saw a movie, and I just didn't really feel much after watching it. Like, maybe I thought it was a good movie, but I just didn't really feel there was anything more to discuss. But somebody else went and saw it, got a different reaction, comes to me with, like, a whole different energy, like, hey, I'm thinking I can get 30 to 40 minutes out of this, but then I look at that movie I just saw that he also just saw, and I go, I don't know if I'd even get 10 minutes of discussion out of this movie. So... I'm not saying that the movies that I'm talking about today wouldn't have been good discussion pieces. It just comes down to me not really feeling discussing those movies in depth. This is a quickie podcast, which is just like a little bit of a catch-up, and it's going to basically go over all of these different movies that I saw in June. And literally the next collaboration podcast, I think, is probably going to be Fast and Furious 9 and then Boss Baby 2 for sure because the Funny Squad wants to come back on and talk about the cinematic equivalent of the new Citizen Kane in Boss Baby 2, and I'm not going to reject that from him. Then from there, I don't know, like Black Widow's coming out, I guess, if people want to still talk about Marvel movies. The Green Knight, I think, is coming out soon, and Dalton and I are definitely going to talk about that. Charles has yet to reach out to me if he wants to do, like, Loki or some other obscure indie film that's come out. Basically, I don't know what the future kind of holds, so we're going to do this quickie podcast so I at least have something for the month of June to put up. So anyways, we're going to start off with the first movie on the podcast, which is The Conjuring Part 3. So The Conjuring Part 3. Okay, I'm probably going to get a little bit of flack for this because I know there are a lot of people that really like to talk about The Conjuring movies and actually really love The Conjuring movies, but I'm somebody that does not really care for The Conjuring films. Now, let me kind of explain a little bit because horror is a very subjective genre. People get scared in different ways. For me, though, horror has always been you've got to have really good performances really good atmosphere building, production design, cinematography. Basically, you have to scare me with your actors and not jump scares. What bugs me about The Conjuring films is they are mostly 70% jump scare, 30% performance based. If you have to scare your audience with a manufactured loud noise in order to get a reaction out of them, then that probably means A, your actors and actresses aren't that good to carry the movie along horror-wise, B, the studio is telling you to do this because they know the script and or scares you're setting up aren't enough to make audiences jump, or C, the movie is just thrown together so quickly that the only way they think they can get reactions out of people is if they add the loud noise. That's kind of the issue with The Conjuring films. I think the first one is actually really solid. I think I would give it a 7 out of 10, because honestly, it's directed by uh, James Wan, and he's a really good director, and he does a lot of great atmosphere building in that movie, and it doesn't heavily utilize a lot of jump scares, but when you get to, like, The Conjuring Part 2, they lean more into the jump scares, and yeah, there is a creepy little girl performance in the movie, but a lot of the movie is just an overabundance of jump scares. And then the rest of the movies in the universe are just hot garbage. Like, The Nun is literally 90% 
100% jump scares and all the performances suck. I never saw The Curse of La Llorona because the trailer looked like a jump scare mess. The Annabelle movies all kind of really suck. I think I like Creation a little bit or Annabelle Comes Home. I don't remember because they kind of blend together for me. But again, those rely heavily on jump scares. Just jump scare horror does not do it for me. I always know when the scare is coming. I don't ever get phased by it. It's just not my type of horror. My type of horror is more performance-based, which is like why I like movies, obviously, like Midsommar or Hereditary, Rosemary's Baby, The Shining. Like, I could go on forever about certain horror movies that are more my bread and butter. And that's perfectly fine if you like jump scare movies. I don't think there's a thing that's wrong with you enjoying, like, a, a jump scare movie. Because let's say you've got a significant other and you want to cuddle up next to him when they jump and scream from the jump scare. Obviously, these types of movies work in that scenario, but for me, these are the types of horror movies that have just never clicked with me, resonated. And so The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, which I still kind of hate this title. What did I think of it? Well, this movie's kind of bogged down by a mostly formulaic premise, and it's got very little of Jane, uh, James Wan's master directing elements. Now, the thing that kind of bugs me about this movie is the fact that James Wan did not come back to do it because he already did the previous first two Conjuring movies. Now, I get it. He's off making Aquaman 2, but why wouldn't you just delay this movie until he's free to finish it? Because, honestly, I think this could have been a decent, like, 5 or 6 out of 10 movie if you brought him back to actually direct this a little bit more because they picked the director that made the Curse of La Llorona, which I never saw, and this movie kind of feels like all that guy knows how to do is direct jump scare horror because... There's a lot of problems with this movie. This third Conjuring entry feels like it kind of loses the elements that made it redeemable, and it falls into an overabundance of predictable jump scares, boring characters, and a bare-bones plot. Now, like I said earlier, I am a big believer that loud noises do not equal horror. So jump scares are not obviously my thing that I like. I feel like they're a cheap way to get horror across. And 70% of this movie's horror is just jump scares, and it's really hard for me to get invested in this movie when it's all just jump scares, and the creepy performances really don't do it for me. I was so bored at times that I actually kind of started laughing at some of the jump scares. Like, right at the beginning of the movie with the little kid that they're doing the exorcism on, they pump in so many loud noises, I just found it so goofy. And even the performance from the uh, uh, exorcism that's going on from the, uh, what would you say, demon-possessed kid, I just didn't really care for it. I actually found it to be extremely goofy. I also got to say, this movie kind of sets up something that I thought was really dumb. So Ed is given this heart defect in the movie that is inconsistently written. There's a point in the movie in which he actually has to start walking with the cane on the left side of his hand, but then switches it around, and then at a certain point doesn't need the cane at all, and it's just like, dude, does your heart medication not matter in this movie? Like, shouldn't you be falling over? And I know some people could argue, oh, well, when he was possessed, all of his bodily functions went back to normal. Well, still, even after he's not possessed, shouldn't he feel it in his heart? And, like, shouldn't this man be dead? Because he does run around in the movie sometimes without the cane. I'm just saying it's not really a well-written plot point. It really should have gotten something better. Lorraine, on the other hand, kind of stays consistent from what the series set up with her, but our new characters are just kind of the worst part of the movie. They're also flat and underwritten to the point of where the narrative just kind of uses them as horror puppets, and it doesn't really grow them until the ending. Also, I gotta say, my biggest issue with this movie is that it wants to sympathize with a literal, it wants you to sympathize with a literal murderer. Now, what I mean by that is, the main, like, pro not protagonist of the movie, but 
the main person that they're investigating in the movie has been possessed by a demon and killed somebody. Possessed by a demon, in air quotes. And so, the whole court case is about how this guy is pleading, oh, well, the devil made me do it and stuff. And so, Ed and Lorraine Warren are called up to investigate this if there actually was a demon. And by the ending, they do discover, yes, it was a demon possession, but he still goes to prison because, obviously, they don't believe something like that could happen in the justice system. But, here's the thing. Ed and Lorraine Warren have been known as hacks for years. They've made up a lot of their cases, and a lot of them have gotten debunked. And so my biggest issue is that this movie wants you to sympathize with a literal murderer that was, air quotes, possessed by a demon, and I just don't vibe with that. This guy murdered somebody. He should not be seen as this sympathetic character. I mean, literally, murderers should not be sympathized with. Like, come on, people. But even without James Wan at the helm, and the consistent elements of these movies some, uh, still seem to be here in some aspects. Like, the cinematography still seems somewhat good, the editing choices are nice, I still think that Ed and Lorraine are the best parts of these movies, but for the most part, I'm just not really going to remember this movie at all. The plot's not really that great, the scares aren't really that good, there's some inconsistent written moments in it, and I gotta say, the ending of the movie just really fell flat for me, and some people have actually told me they find this to not be scary at all, and honestly, I can see that. With so many jump scares in the movie and lack of good performances, this does feel like a movie you would just kind of put on in the background and forget about. I think I'm going to give this one like a 4 out of 10 because it really did not impress me. I'm probably not going to see any more Conjuring movies past this point because I just can't get into the universe. And honestly, I gotta say, for the people that do like these movies, I'm sorry that I'm the one guy that doesn't care for them. But let's move into the next movie, which is Cruella. Now honestly, there isn't really a whole lot to say about Cruella that hasn't already been said on the internet right now, so I'm just going to kind of keep it brief a little bit with my thoughts. But Cruella is a more style over substance movie, and what I, be my, what I mean by that is it is a movie that looks pretty, looks nice, looks like it was made competently, but there's no substance here. No real good plot to attach to, no real good characters to attach to. Now I always thought Cruella was kind of a weird choice to make a Disney live-action remake around, especially because Cruella Deville is an awful villain and kind of an awful human being because she literally wants to murder dogs and make them into a fur coat. How are we supposed to sympathize with that kind of figure? I don't think that the Disney company really thought this out when they were putting this together because quite honestly a lot of this movie is just like, oh woe is me, I'm Cruella, society knocks me down, just like another movie with a certain Joker did almost two years ago. Now, Craig Gillespie, uh, or Gillespie, however you say it, is a really good director. He made the movie I, Tonya, obviously, and he's a really good stylistic director on period accuracy. And this movie is set during the punk rock era, so obviously a lot of the clothes are very stylish and outlandish for the time. And I think that this movie is going to get a nomination, obviously, in the costume department. I think that both Emma Thompson and Emma Stone do phenomenal in this movie with their performances, but everything else in this movie just kind of feels like, eh, I don't really know if I agree with what you're setting up here. Like, for example, Cruella, and I'm just going to say this is a spoiler ahead. If you don't want to hear any spoilers for Cruella, click off here or skip to the next one. Go to the next time code. I don't know. But here are the spoilers for Cruella. Cruella's mother is literally murdered by Dalmatians. She is pushed off a cliff by Dalmatians and falls very comically. Yes. So the movie wants you to hate the Dalmatians because her mother is murdered by Dalmatians, and Cruella sets out on this little revenge tour to obviously get back at her, but then we figure out that there is a twist halfway through in which Cruella's mother is actually the Baroness played by Emma Thompson, and it's just it's a dumb choice, and then the movie takes an even dumber choice for her to become just like the Baroness and just as crazy, and 
It's dumb, and then the ending of the movie is probably the dumbest part of the entire thing because Cruella goes back to the same cliff where her mother died, brings all of the guests to the Baroness's party outside, the Baroness tries to kill her, and then of course Cruella is pushed off the cliff again by the, is by the Baroness, and then somehow survives because she had like a little parachute thing on, I guess, and then she switches into the Cruella DeVille costume and just, oh, this movie gets so dumb at the ending, it hurts. But basically, the biggest issue with Cruella is the entire time you're watching this movie, you don't really feel sympathetic towards her because, again, this woman will grow up later to kill Dalmatians. And I don't care if they try to make it in a way where, oh, well, look, these Dalmatians murdered her mother. First off, Dalmatians are not as vicious as what people think. They just don't go around ripping throats out or, like, pushing people off cliffs. They are not very vicious violent and aggressive dogs. Yes, they maybe have some aggressive tendencies, but not to the point of where you're going to make them literal murderers. That's the dumbest choice on the planet this movie ever could have made. And again, Cruella's not a good human being. How am I supposed to like somebody like this? Like, the biggest issue with Joker is that there are some people that actually think Joker is a sympathetic character. No, Joker is still a lunatic, which is why by the end of Joker, you're still like, wow, he does kind of become the clown psychopath we all knew. But this movie literally ends with you supposedly going, oh, well, maybe Cruella's not that bad. But no, that's not what you should do because she's still going to grow up to try to skin the puppies. It just, it's not a good choice. This movie is not really great in any way shape or form in its narrative because a lot of it just uses really really joker-esque like abilities in its plot line to make you want to sympathize with this dog murderer literally down to them using the song smile that was in joker in a scene in which corella is in a burning apartment crying to herself Literally, this movie sucks. It's awful. I gave it a 4 out of 10, much like I did The Conjuring, and I kind of hope people don't see this. I know that some people already have, but literally, wait till it's either free or just, like, put it on in the background someday, but, like, this one's not very good. I would not recommend it. Let's move into the next movie, which is, I don't even know, let me check my script. Okay, so I messed up a little bit. I was about to record Luca, and then I double-checked my script again and went, Oh, wait, in the heights, I gotta talk about this, my bad. So, my eyesight sucks right now, I probably should have contacts in, but let's get into In the Heights, shall we? So I wasn't really sure if I was going to watch In the Heights because the last musical movie that I saw was Cats and that was in theaters and it was really awful but me and my friend laughed at it the entire time so I guess that was good but I wasn't big on seeing this in theaters mostly because of the bad taste Cats left the last time. So I watched this at home on my 4K TV and I gotta say this is a dazzling little movie that we needed in 2021 right now. Now while I'm not huge on musicals in particular I thought this was mostly fun. This is written in the style of a Lin-Manuel Miranda stage play because it is literally a Lin-Manuel Miranda stage play and a lot of the Hamilton-isms of his uh, Hamilton play can be felt throughout this movie. There's a lot of really good rapping that goes on the movie, creative beats, there's a lot of actor choices that really kind of emphasize plot points and details in the movie. But one thing that I got to say about this in particular is the fact that it just feels like it carries a fun energy the entire time. Like yeah, this thing is nearly two hours and 15 minutes. I think maybe it's even two hours and 20 minutes and sure at times you can really feel the runtime when there isn't a poppy musical sequence to carry it along but honestly I gotta say for the most part I was pretty engaged with this movie from start to finish. I think that my favorite sequence in the entire movie was 96,000 I mean literally the whole thing was just this dazzling spectacle of different rap verses and different ways of singing the lyrics to make it feel unique and different to each of the different persons from the heights and for the most part I just really liked the idea of seeing Corey Hawkins getting to actually flow and have some fun because I haven't seen Corey 
Macquarie Hawkins in anything really since Kong Skull Island, and I liked him as an actor, and I don't understand why he doesn't get more work. But I think the standout of this movie for me was Anthony Ramos. I think that he does a really good job in this movie as Usnavi, and I think that he carries a lot of the emotional aspects of this movie. Plus, he pretty much raps better than Lin-Manuel Miranda does. Some people are going to hate me for saying that, but come on, you got to admit, Lin isn't the greatest rapper on the planet. I think there are also a lot of other fun songs in the movie, like Piragua was a pretty good musical number in the movie. I thought that Monomi Diga, which was in the uh, barbershop, was a pretty good one. I also thought that there was a good one at Benny's Taxi Cab Shop. I even thought that Abuela had a really nice one halfway through the movie. And i got to say, there are so many nice little musical sequences in this movie to where you'll have fun. But I feel like some characters in this movie don't really get as fleshed out as others. Like, for example, I felt that Vanessa's entire characterization was kind of weak. Like, I get it, she kind of not only serves as, like, the love interest of Usnavi, but her little subplot about getting a, a boutique or whatever it was doesn't really feel like it really goes much of anywhere or is fleshed out all that well. It also kind of felt like characters like Benny get pushed to the side at a certain point. It feels like other characters that are very minor, like, obviously, Usnavi's cousin don't get much characterization. It's just kind of like frustrating because you want to learn more about each of these characters and they have enough runtime to do it and they don't and it kind of sucks for me in a way. I also got to say the plot of this thing is not exactly the most strong thing on the planet. Like I get it, it's about a little dream that people have about getting out of the heights and stuff and Usnavi's dream to go back to the Dominican but honestly I got to say a lot of this plot is just kind of around dancing and musical numbers and honestly while I'm fine with that I kind of wish there was stronger material to attach to here. I got to say though if you have HBO Max, definitely check this one out because it is a definite fun time this summer. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. It's a very fun musical. So, the new Disney Pixar movie just came out. And I gotta say right now, I don't really blame Pixar in the spot they're in before I talk about Luca here in a little bit because let's think about Pixar a little bit here, right? Disney has essentially told them twice now, hey, you know those movies you wanted to send to theaters to make us money and also your company money? Well... What if we don't do that, we just pay you a ton of money that isn't going to be the same thing as what you could get at the box office and put it for free on our streaming service while stuff like Corella is out there in theaters and the Marvel movies and stuff like that that you're still going to have to pay $30 for if you want to watch it at home. You see what kind of sucks about that from Pixar's point of view. It feels like they're getting screwed here, which is why if I was Pixar, I'd either negotiate a new contract with Disney or I'd threaten to pull out. If I was them, honestly. Now, granted, I don't know how good of an idea that is because I don't feel like they're going to be great without Disney's help a little bit because let's admit, Disney does bring in some of the corporate think tank that helps them with like their idea, their idea flow and stuff. If they just went out and tried to do their own thing, maybe they'd be more creatively freedom likewise and they'd be able to do more great stuff. But at the same time, I also fear that they wouldn't also be super great without Disney's handholding. So we'll have to see how it goes. But basically, let's talk for a minute about Pixar because before I get into Luca, I want to talk about my feelings on Pixar right now. So it feels like after Pixar puts out a really good groundbreaking movie, they put out like three Illumination kind of movies. And what I mean by that is Illumination kind of movies means they're mediocre, forgettable movies that come out after. Because most of those movies that Illumination makes are forgettable bad or just mediocre bad. Or just very forgettable in a way. Because, like, the only one that I still talk about really illumination-wise that people still kind of bring up to me is, like, Despicable Me 1 or maybe The Lorax. I don't hear anybody else talk about illumination movies besides that. Because, again, they're all very formulaic and forgettable. They literally exist to sell toys and make money. Whereas Pixar, it kind of felt like the opposite. It felt like they made movies to tell stories 
and toys were always second to last. But now, we live in a society where, oh, well, everything's got to make us money. Even the characters, the toy merch, everything like that. And so, obviously, Disney has put the iron on Pixar's head and has said, hey, start making movies we can sell toys with. We don't care about this emotionally resonant crap, which is why Pixar really only puts out a good movie every so often. So, for example, let's go back to 2010, right? Toy Story 3 was a phenomenal good finish to the Toy Story franchise, right? Let's talk about what comes out after that. Cars 2, Brave, Monsters University. You know how many people talk about those movies anymore? Exactly. Inside Out comes out after that, though, in 2015, and that's a very good movie, phenomenal movie. A lot of people say that might be their favorite Pixar movie. It left a lot of emotional resonance with people. But what comes out after Inside Out? The Good Dinosaur. Finding Dory. Cars 3. How many people talk about those movies again? How many people like those movies? Again, I don't hear anybody talk about these movies anymore. You know what comes out after that? Coco, phenomenal movie, has a great final scene in it, one of the best Pixar movies ever made. You know what comes out after Coco? The Incredibles 2. Toy Story 4. Onward. Now, Onward might be fresh in some people's minds from the pandemic, but I guarantee people are not going to talk about that much longer, especially with the whole Chris Pratt thing that's going on right now, and also due to the fact that, you know, Chris Pratt's kind of annoying in that movie and Jack Black should definitely played his character. But, you know what comes out after Onward? Soul. And so many people are talking about how phenomenal Soul was as a movie and how it made them really think deep about themselves and stuff like that. And you know what comes out after Soul? Luca. Now, let me talk about Luca a little bit here, because I don't think it's fair to say it's as bad or as forgettable as these Illumination-type movies that Disney has made. Because, honestly, I think it's one of the better movies that's come out to follow up a big movie that was like Soul. But at the same time, it does have a lot of issues with it, especially in the more style-over-substance thing that Disney is on right now. Literally, Disney wants to distract you with the realistic, gorgeous animation so that way you don't focus on their mostly mediocre premises. Like, Luca essentially really doesn't have many deep themes to it besides don't conceal, be yourself, which has been done before a lot. It also doesn't really have a plot outside of Luca and Alberto want to win a Vespa race, and <laughs> literally that's about it. The movie is essentially a series of skits and funny gags stringed together, and it even has a villain that's so cheesily written you'll swear he was a DreamWorks or Illumination reject idea. It has a standard conflict resolution setup that also feels very formulaic. Yes, we know Luca and Alberto will fight at some point. They'll break up and come together by the ending, and the whole town is going to turn on them and live happily ever after with them. It's very simple. But this is, again, a company I feel like should not want to shoot for Illumination-style simple kids' movies. There's somebody that has always worked on these emotionally resonant movies. Now, like I said, obviously maybe Disney is putting the iron on their back and they got to make movies that sell toys, but I just expect more from this company. I want more. I want a narrative that's going to make me feel something by the ending. Luca really doesn't do that for me. It just feels like a movie that was manufactured to make families laugh a little bit, and then maybe they don't talk about it at all afterward. They just sit down, watch it together. Oh, that was funny. Talk about it for a few days and forget about it. Whereas stuff like The Incredibles that was made back in like 04 is still talked about today because of some of the emotional writing in that movie and some of the great deep, think, think, uh, deep, deep thinking ideas that they put into the movie. 
I also got to say one thing about Luca that kind of bothers me is the fact that it never really explains the whole fish change to human stuff that it does in the movie, or why the town hates sea monsters, how they can breathe above water. It never tries to care and address any of these issues, and it feels so frustratingly lazy because they could have had a really good emotional tie-in to some of these ideas, or explained it better in an emotional way through the narrative, or just actually made it a smart narrative, but again, it feels very lazily put together. Also, there's a subplot in Luca where Luca's parents are trying to find him above water, so they go around dunking kids' heads in water or pouring water on them, but why would they want to go risk exposing their kid as a fish in front of the town like that? It kind of seems counterproductive to the whole conceal thing that they stressed on him, and also I kind of hate how lazily the movie just ends with the town accepting Luca and Alberto in under two minutes. I mean, literally, the whole town should not be okay with just the fish people being part of their society now. I feel like there should be some people that are like, I don't know if I'm uncomfortable or if I'm comfortable with that yet, and that would have been perfectly fine. Like it feels so half-assed uh, to have characters like Julia and her father come up with half-assed reasons as to why the town should switch gears, and I just I don't know I didn't really buy it. Now, while I have been kind of negative, I do have to sh uh, shed some positivity on the movie. I think the animation is gorgeous, and it's really in the Italian-style imagery that most Italian animation works have. I think Alberto and Luca have a really good re uh, relationship. I think Julia really adds a nice layer to growing Luca into the astrology study by the ending. I think the theme of the movie, even despite being really formulaic, is still a good one for kids to hear. And while some of the jokes in this movie weren't for me and were kind of 50-50 like Onward, I still feel like there was still a good enough humor in this to where you'll laugh at it. It actually does feel like a movie that maybe you could see yourself re-watching down the road, but again, it does feel like something that's kind of lacking when compared to a movie like Soul that came out from last year. I'm going to give Luca a 6 out of 10 though, and maybe it'll change to a 7 down the road if I warm up on it, but I'm going to give it a 6 right now because while it's fine and it's a decent follow-up to Soul, it's just not the emotionally resonant movie that I want from something that Pixar has made before. I want more from this company, even if it feels like they're going backwards. Now, I've gone forever about Luca. Let's move on to the last movie on this podcast, which is The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. 30 seconds, go. Okay, The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Uh, it's just as formulaic and just as unfunny as the original was. Salma Hayek might be the best part of the movie because she just says whatever she wants. Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson are phoning it in the entire time and don't really seem to care to be there. Antonio Banderas is playing his character way too serious like Gary Oldman did in the original. None of the comedy is really that good. Morgan Freeman's just kind of in it for money. The ending's really stupid. Eh, it's a 4 out of 10. Not a very good comedy. Let's move into Bo Burnham Inside. Bo Burnham's Inside. Wow, I gotta say... I'm pretty blown away by this. So Bo Burnham is a comedian I was always kind of iffy on a little bit. Like I enjoyed most of his comedy where he was singing on his piano, talking about edgy stuff into a microphone, and somehow making it lyrically work. But I will admit this sort of like energy that he brought with that did get old after a while, which is why I can understand why he was trying to get into things like directing and being in movies to kind of, you know, diverse himself a little bit. But I always thought that his original music was pretty good. And for the most part, I was like, why doesn't Bo just become a singer if he doesn't really like the comedy thing? as much but I think from the special I really do understand he is very good at being that musical comedian a little bit and also tackling subjects that I wouldn't expect a guy like Bo Burnham to do because he does come across as like this quirky white guy and you're like oh what does he know about the world and stuff but he does actually say a lot of great things in this special so I do want to kind of talk about my little thesis that I put together over this thing because 
Bo is clearly putting all of his creative energies into this baby. He tackles themes early on about systemic racism, depression, manipulative, ad culture, cancel culture, and even self-worth. I think some of the songs really emphasize the point that Bo is trying to make about the feeling of isolation and loneliness crippling our psyche, so much so to the point of where we become so attached to the idea of being alone that we fear the idea of outside rejection from others when we are safe in our own homes. However, not even our own home is safe. Stuff like sexting, welcome to the internet, and Jeff Bezos one and, uh, one and two not only serve as silly songs, but warnings of these personal demons we let take over our lives in isolation. I also think it was a good choice for Bo to end the special on a note in which he acknowledges we all fear returning to normal, but at the end of the day, nothing beats the human interaction that we first had. I feel like Bo does a good job kind of showing that isolation aspect a little bit throughout this special because there are a lot of moments when the music isn't going on where he's going to his door or looking at the light and stuff, and it just kind of shows the point of like how bad it is for a comedian like him to be locked up when he would rather be out there talking to different people, but at the same time, for as much as he's been in isolation, he is used to things like the internet kind of being there for him to put his energy into and also be there to take his mind off things, but it's also mind-numbing to the point of where he feels almost safe in his home. I feel like there are a lot of good things about Bo in this special, especially music-wise, because I gotta say, some of my favorite music in this entire thing is like Welcome to the Internet, That Funny Feeling, I gotta say 30 was actually a pretty nice creative song. I also thought Unpaid Intern was pretty nice, not the reaction portion of it, but Unpaid Intern was a nice little song. I also like content. I just thought this was a really, really good creative energy of music that was put into the special. But I also got to admit, as much as I like the special, there is a little bit of that Bo Burnham cringe in here a little bit. Like the YouTube-esque reaction video section I didn't find all that funny. Uh, funny. I didn't think sexting was all that funny of a song either. I also thought there were certain points in the special where he would just start riffing and it wasn't really all that funny. Just, Bo is kind of cringy at times because, you know, he is that quirky white guy like somebody like me is doing a podcast like this, and so sometimes it just felt a little bit off-putting. So I gotta say, I'm gonna give the special an 8 out of 10 because I do think a lot of people should go out and listen to it and watch it because it is very good. Thank you guys for listening to this podcast, though. I'm glad that some people still do listen to these quickies, even when I don't have a collab podcast. Like I said, I'll hopefully be back with Fast 9 and definitely Boss Baby 2 to talk about. So I'll see you guys with another collab, uh, collab podcast down the road.